Well, tonight, I want to talk to you about a couple things. Have you noticed that there's certain questions that kids, you know, the kids get to that age and they just don't stop asking questions? And they just roll with them. And at first, it's cute, and you're loving that they're, they have this sense of wonder about the world. And then there's times where it's like, oh, my goodness, can you stop asking questions? But some of those questions kind of linger because it's hard to even answer them, even for ourselves. You think about, you know, like, why is the sky blue? So I had someone ask me that this week. They were serious. So I told them what I know about it, and, you know, that wasn't a very satisfying answer for them. But at least, you know, we went there. And, you know, there's other questions that we have that kind of linger with us. You know, what are the seasons about? Why did they change? And I, you know what I found out this week? I'm the master of random facts, just things that are interesting to me. Did you know identical twins do not have identical fingerprints? Did you know that? But did you know why? Because even though the genetics of identical twins dictate the development of their body the same, there are still things in all of our bodies that are kind of random, that the, that the genes don't particularly control, and one of those things is fingerprints. I did not know that. I mean, I knew that they were different, but I didn't know why. And the only reason I knew they were different is because, you know, we've all seen cop shows where the plot line has twins involved, but somehow the, the, everything's the same, the DNA on the blood, but then not the fingerprint. Well, that was interesting. I didn't know that there were certain things as our bodies develop that are, that are literally random, have nothing to do, the genes don't control those details, where they do control nearly every other detail. It's kind of an interesting deal to me. Does anybody know how fast the world is spinning under us? Did you say, Tim? I... Does anybody have a guess? I mean, it's moving. It's cooking. Do you know how fast it is? How fast? Well, I don't measure it in that way. He's giving me a very technical measurement here. It, it's, it's close to 800 miles an hour. It's actually 1,040 miles an hour. So we're spinning that fast, but we have no sensation of that. Because we're part of it. But I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I do remember asking my mom, seriously, well, if the, mo- if the world is moving that fast, how come I can't jump up and have it go under me and me move over there? You know, I, I remember, I can remember the look on her face. She's just looking at me like, uh, you can't do that. And, you know, but you wonder sometimes. The, the world is a fascinating place, and there's, there's these things we can't explain. Like I thought of this this week. Can germs catch germs? So I actually Googled that because I was curious, and they can. There are actually germs for germs. It's just you, of course, can't even see the germs, so you wouldn't ever be able to see the germs for the germs. It's, it's crazy to think that, that there's things that small. So, you know, with electron microscope, we can actually look at some of those things. It's kind of fascinating. Um, I don't know if your mom told you this, but I, I always swallowed the, you know, the, the watermelon seeds and all. And she used to joke around and say, you know, go watermelons out your ears. And I knew that wasn't true because I'd swallowed a ton of them and swallowed a lot of other things, too, that didn't grow. But, but then I remember the first time somebody at school said, because um, I'd swallowed my gum, because I had gum, and then the teacher's like, anybody has gum, you're getting an F or whatever they said. And I just swallowed it, and somebody said, oh, that's never going to come out of your stomach. It's going to be in your stomach your whole life. I remember looking, I'm like, that is impossible because my stomach would be full if that was possible because I knew I'd already swallowed that much gum. Do you know what happens to the gum? It'd be just like a penny. That's all I'm going to tell you. It'd be the same as a penny. Okay, why do... <laughs> but here's something I seriously do want to ask God when we get there. Why is it that at a certain age, and I think I've mentioned this before, that men lose their hair on their head but start growing it profusely out of their ears and nose? What is the heck? What is the deal with that? I knew a guy. I had a good friend. He was... Um, <laughs> he was a good friend of mine. He did auto body. And I remember one time we were sitting there talking, and um, I'm looking at him and I realize... I just said to him, I said, 
I said, Joe, you really got to do some other hair growing out your nose. I mean, it was coming off the top of his nose right here. I mean, it was so thick. And he's like, well, I pull them every day. I'm like, man, it's tough. Life's tough. But on the other hand, there's things that happen in the world that we don't really have good answers for. I mean, those things are silly things. They don't really matter that much. But then there's some things that happen, and it really dis- it's really disturbing. <clears throat> and I'm specifically talking about things that happen which don't seem fair or don't add up. And in our minds, we have a certain way that the world should work. And then when it doesn't work that way, it's frustrating and scary. And we start to question things like, God, what is going on here? And maybe you know somebody who their life hasn't turned out quite right. And it really wasn't particularly their fault. You know, because in our minds, we, if, they, if they do certain things, we think they had it coming, right? You know, and, and for, for a lot of people, that's true. And for a lot of us, you don't know our faults. So anything bad that happens, you probably don't know. And we probably did deserve it, but... <clears throat> the fact is, we all deserve worse than we get. But we still have that sense that something's not right in the world. And, and I know, you know, maybe not you, but some people would say, well, it's probably just bad luck, or, you know, the bad decisions caught up with them. Or my, maybe you'll say, I've heard this before. I mean, we would never say this, but, you know, the universe hates them. Have you ever heard that? But sadly, sometimes you kind of get the idea that maybe God is mad at them, and he's got it out for them. Some people kind of go through life thinking that because... Underlying all of that is that sense that if God was good and the world was fair, good things would happen to good people. And when that doesn't happen, it starts to make you wonder. Let me ask you this. Why in the world would a child ever be born crippled or disfigured or blind or with any deformity? Where I I grew up, um, most of my elementary school, right, um, we lived on on a block like this. There was a church right behind our house, and then right across from them was, was a um, school for, I don't know if they've changed the name because it's so politically incorrect, but it was called ARC, you know, Mentally Retarded Kids or something. I don't remember what it's called, but that's what it was. And I remember asking my mom, why are those kids like that? Why are they there? You know, and she explained like normal. I mean, they, those kids need special care. And special education because they, they wouldn't really it wouldn't really work for them to be in a regular school environment. <clears throat> but I remember even as a kid thinking, why were they born that way? Why is that? And some of us may wonder that. And we've lived in you know in the world that we live in today, we care for kids like that and families like that, and we have special programs and we accommodate every need we possibly can. But the world hasn't always been so kind to them. You're aware of that, I know. What you may not be aware of is that in the first century where Jesus was, where he walked the earth, in that time, most children like that were just left out in exposure to die. That was the way it was handled. If a child was born like that, they were left out in the elements. That's what would happen. Because we know from church history and from early church history that one of the things that distinguished Christianity from any other faith and certainly from the world that, that Christianity was born in is they took those kids in. They adopted those children. They took them as part of their family. And that was, there's, there's actually writings in ancient Rome that, say, that they kind of think, what's wrong with these people? And they actually criticized them for doing it because those people were then going to be a drag on society and, and it wasn't the way it should be. But the Christians looked at it as they're a gift from God and their creation just like we are. And, and his image is in them just like it's in us and they deserve to be cared for. And you see there in history the birth of, of a different kind of compassion that reaches out to people. 
But what was really prevalent in that time was there was actually explanations for how that happened. Because the same questions I had as a kid, people were asking then, how in the world and why in the world would somebody be born like that? How could it happen? And people knew, I mean, they knew even in the Bible, in Leviticus, there's rules for if, if somebody bumps into and damages a baby in the womb, you were held responsible for that. So they understood that part, but I'm talking about like somebody born specifically blind. And in Jewish thought at the time, and Roman thought at the time, if somebody was born blind, that's different than going blind. If you're born blind, they literally thought it was, follow me here, an act of God. That's a cruel God. That's an evil God. That's a capricious God, a God who I don't, I don't really want to be around, but that's the God they thought was causing people to have these things if they're born that way. So there's a very interesting story in John chapter 9. I want us to take a look at it. It says right here, walking down the street, Jesus saw a man born blind from birth. I'm going to stop right there too. Because this is something else that in Jewish thought at the time, it was easier to heal somebody who was, became blind than somebody born blind because they thought it was caused originally by an act of God. So it says right here, his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? You see the underlying assumption that's there? There was no question in their mind that it was caused by God. The only question was, why? And they actually, this theology was very developed in their time. They thought that either the parents had sinned somehow and that having a child born like that was punishment from God from sin, or... They thought that punishment was for something that this person would have done in their life after their birth. And so God was preemptively punishing them. Cruel, isn't it? Could you love a God like that? Would you be drawn to a God like that? Would you want a God like that to make the decisions over your life? I already mentioned that those people would be abandoned. And one of the reasons they would be abandoned in society is because somebody born blind didn't have much of a way to contribute to society. In our society today, you know, p- people with, with those kinds of, you know, abnormalities, they can, they can, you know, read, they can function in life. I mean, it's different, of course, and they need some extra help and protection, but it's different than it would be in, in this society. In that society in the first century, it was much more survival-based. If you couldn't uh, provide for yourself, you were actually a drain. There wasn't a government program to take care of you. There was no way someone was going to help. You would be... This sounds horrible, but you would have been abandoned because you would have been a disappointment to your parents. You would have been a disappointment, and further, you would have been an embarrassment because they would have had to be wondering the same thing. What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve the child like this? And everybody would have wondered about it. And and as that child grew, they would have asked the same question. And they themselves would have walked through life wondering, what was so wrong with me? And they may even have blamed their parents and and said, why didn't you abandon me? I wouldn't have to live like this. Because this man, the only hope he had to survive was to beg. And, And really, there weren't a lot of people who would make it to this stage in life having been born blind. Think about you as a parent, all the hopes and dreams you have for a child. You ladies who've carried a child for nine months, you name it, you bond with it, you talk to it, you wonder what it's gonna be like. You wonder what the personality is going to be, what they're going to do, what they're going to achieve, and then they're born blind. No grandchildren. Nobody's going to marry that guy. All those hopes and dreams dashed. Not only that, parents in that day, there wasn't social security. 
What you had to look forward to as a future was that your children would indeed support you. Because that was pretty much your only hope. There wasn't going to be anything else. And if you hadn't achieved the status where you were financially independent, there's no way you would have been able to take care of yourself. You know what I think about, too, is the gossip that would have happened. Is that baby's born and you want to announce this happy birth, but you're hesitant because, you know, people are going to wonder, what do we do? And then people are going to talk. You know how people are. They're going to talk because that's how we are. And the stories are going to rise up, and there's going to be people saying, oh, I, I bet it was this. I bet it was when they did this. Oh, no, did you hear about when they did this? And all those stories are going to spread, and everything that you knew about them is going to be destroyed, and their reputation is ruined, and this is what it is. It's interesting because in this story, as you get to the end of the story, it's kind of like his parents throw him under the bus. Because not rushing too far ahead, but Jesus does heal the man. And then Jesus disappears into the crowd. And then when people say, hey, isn't this the guy born blind? And then they call him in front of the authorities. The authorities say, how did this happen? And then they talk to his parents and his parents say, "Uh, we don't know. He's old enough. Let him speak for himself. There's issues there. There had to have been issues there. You know, the sad part about that is those assumptions that underlie this, that, that whole idea that there had to be something wrong did lead to a, to, a, to a fracturing in society that was not pleasing to God. It's not what he wanted for his people. It's not what he intended. It's not what he wants for us today. You know what I briefly did? I just briefly read through again. And I, I, I'm only going to show us a few of these verses, but there are so many verses that talk about this one issue, about how destructive the tongue can be and how, how horrible it can be when we talk about each other and where, where for some reason something happens and, it, and some suspicion comes up in our mind. And maybe in the back of your mind you had seen something or maybe you had an issue with somebody and this gives you now a chance to fill that in. And there's so many times in life where we don't know people's backstory and when you don't know, you automatically fill it in. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I should have shown you some of these things, but there's times where where you'll see a picture and things are missing in the picture, but your mind fills it in. Because we do that normally, we do it with information too. And when people don't tell us everything and you don't know what's up and down and what's going on, you fill it in. And sadly, if your inclination is to fill it in with negative, or maybe there's some competition involved, or maybe there's some jealousy there, that negative information that you fill in can be so destructive. It wasn't God's plan for us. I mean, let's look at some of these. Even back in Leviticus, it's actually one of the Old Testament laws. It says, you shall not go up and down as a dispenser of gossip. I love that phraseology, a dispenser of gossip. You know what I thought of? I thought of Pez dispenser. and You're just <laughs> popping out bad things about people. Boom, 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 boom. Dispenser of gossip and scandal among your people. And then he punctuates it with, I am the Lord. That's how serious it is. And yet a lot of times we take it so frivolously. And then Proverbs, you know, a contrary man spreads conflict and a gossip separates friends. I bet you even as you read that right then, your mind shot back to a time, maybe high school, maybe junior high, maybe it was, maybe it was yesterday where friends were separated because of gossip. It's a destructive thing. And we see it right here in the gospels. Basically, the, the disciples themselves are looking for a juicy tidbit of gossip. And they're trying to get it from the source of all life, Jesus. They're walking up to Jesus and saying, give us the inside. What did they do? Because only Jesus would have known what that sin was probably. Or, or Jesus might have known what sin the man might have committed that he got punished for by being blind by God. And I'm sure Jesus looked at him and thought, oh my goodness. How dare you? How dare you ask me to gossip about one of my children? 
don't you know I love them just as much as I love you? And even if there was something to tell, I'm not going to tell you. I refuse to tell you and play this game. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels as they descend to the innermost parts. Oh, that's such a great word picture, isn't it? And we all know how it is. I mean, when there's some good juicy story, right? And you want to know and it's so racy and you're like, oh my gosh, can't believe that happened. Oh my goodness. The words of our gossip are like delicate morsels sinking deep within. Oh, we just read that. Um, this is Proverbs talking about the uh, Proverbs 31 woman and how, how noble she is and great she is. And it's such a long passage about all the wonderful things she does. But this one, I never saw the gossip in there because I didn't read it this way. But this is out of the Amplified Version. It says, she looks well to how things go in her household and the bread of idleness she will not eat. The bread of idleness. That's another beautiful word picture. You know, they say the idle, the idle mind is the devil's play yard ground. Oh, that's right. Gossip, discontent, self-pity. She wouldn't let that stuff. She wouldn't eat it. She refused to eat it. She refused to eat it. I may have told you this before, but when we were, I was a youth pastor in Southern California. One of the things I did, I was on the committee that ran a lot of the big events in the district. One of them was youth convention. And we'd grown to the point where we, we ended up moving to the Anaheim Convention Center. And that was a big mistake. Because we used to be just in hotels, and then we moved to the convention center. The idea was, well, then they can use all these hotels. And what we didn't realize we were walking into is that everything at the convention center was union. So that meant where normally we would just grab a bunch of guys and set up some chairs. Now we had to pay, I'm not lying, it's 25 bucks a chair. I'm like, oh my goodness, all these unintended expenses were just, it was... I remember the last meeting right before the event, we're like, this was a huge mistake. You know, we're going to lose a lot of money, but we can't, we were, we were in it. We were, we already signed a contract. It was done. And, um, <clears throat> does anybody remember White Snake? That was our big band that year. Um, so then this rumor went around that a youth pastor had snuck his kids into convention. And I was especially incensed by that for a lot of reasons. Number one, I knew the finances. And I knew we needed that money that those kids would have paid to go to this event. And he literally, just like maybe you might have done as a kid into the theater where you let someone else in the door, that's what happened. One person paid, and then they let this whole youth group in the side door. And then the more I thought about it, it's like, you got to be kidding me. What is he teaching these, these students? You're stealing from God, for goodness sakes. You just snuck kid. They, oh, my goodness. What are you thinking? And, you know, money's tight for everybody, but come on. I remember going to the district youth director, and I said, is this true? And I'll never forget this. Drew Smithson, he's like, yeah, it's true. I said, who was it? I was ready. To, <laughs> like, who was this? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you. And I'm like, what? You want to tell me? He goes, no, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. I couldn't believe it. He never told me. It's been 30 years. He's, he never told me. And it wasn't like I didn't ask him. I just wanted to know. And eventually it wasn't like I was upset anymore. I was just like, I just wanted to know. I wanted to know because truthfully, I had some guys in the back of my mind who I thought, thought might do something like that. And I kind of wanted to confirm what I already judged about them. That would have made a gossip. And I was asking for that. And he, this Drew, he's such noble character. He wouldn't even tell me. Even when it was years later and it wouldn't even have mattered. 
he wouldn't tell me. I respect him so much for that. And at the time, I, I mean, I, I respected and I laughed and I walked away thinking, yeah, he's a way better guy than me. Because I would have told a few people and we would have taken care of things. You know the other thing that it undermines? This whole thing? This whole idea that God would, would curse somebody with some illness because of sin like that? It totally took away that sense of compassion. You know why? Uh, there's, there's a, of course, everybody knows Mother Teresa, but then there's also Hilda Buntain, which ran a, an assembly got orphanage in Calcutta for years and years and years and years and years. Saved the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. But part of the reason that they were so effective is because the caste system, similar to this, in, in India, says that the lowest caste deserved what their life is because they earned it in the life before. And if they're humble enough and play it right this time, then maybe next time they'll come in at a higher level. That's the way reincarnation works. They have no compassion for those people. And in first century Israel, the same thing was true. Because those, those disciples weren't saying, Jesus, how sad is this guy's life? Do you think you have some time or maybe you could heal him? They didn't do that. They didn't bring him to Jesus and say, Jesus, we got something for you. He needs your touch because he's been struggling with this his birth. What they said is, why is, he, why is he blind? Because it had to be his sin or someone else. They had no compassion for him. We do the same thing over and over and over. You know, it's so easy to become self-righteous and so comfortable in our life where we think, I earned this somehow, or I got here somehow on my own, or because I'm good, I'm, God has smiled on me. And in fact, it's not that way. I look at these verses about compassion. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of other. Christianity is like the exact opposite of, of humanism. It's the exact opposite of the way the world is working. You know, it's not just about you. You're supposed to look for other people. This Galatians 6.2 verse is awesome because 6.1 talks about if your brother falls into sin, gently bring him back. And it says, be careful in case you fall into the same sin. And then it says, bear one another's burdens. Those burdens you're supposed to bear are about sin in context and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That is a burden. And those disciples should have been bearing the burden. Instead, they just wanted to talk about his sin. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Who does that, really? I mean, who is it who, who walks around and builds everybody else up and talks about how great they are instead of themselves? I mean, it goes on. So then, uh, in Galatians 6.10, this is further, and I should have put those together. But while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are in the household of faith. Christianity is famous for this, and sadly, for shooting the wounded. You know, people fail, or people make mistakes, and, and it embarrasses us, and we walk away, or don't talk to them anymore, or whatever. James 1.27, pure and un- undefiled religion in the sight of God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress... And keep oneself unstained by the world. That was another hallmark of Christianity that was new and different. They didn't do that very often. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples. 
if you have love for one another. And I'm not criticizing the disciples because I think I'm better than them. I'm just pointing out what we see in Scripture. As you walk through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and you see the way that the disciples treat all the people around them, it is not this. But Jesus was teaching them this, and they learned this because we read about it later. But if you think about how they interacted with the crowd, they're the ones who turned away the children, and Jesus said, no, let the children come to me because such is the kingdom of heaven, right? They're the ones who tried to get rid of the Syrophoenician woman. They're the ones who pushed people away from Jesus because they probably liked being on the inner circle and they didn't want to share that with anybody and they weren't compassionate and didn't reach out to everybody. And then Jesus says, everybody is going to know you're my disciples by how you treat people, by the love that you show to everybody else. Matthew 25, I love this. The king will answer and say to him, this Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of these brothers of mine, the least of them, you did it to me. And in this, the context is this, is where, you know, he says, you know, you, thank you for giving me a cup of cold water. He says, when did I ever see you naked and clothe you or see you thirsty and give you a drink? And he says, when you did it for the least of these. I love how Jesus takes that. So they come to Jesus and they say, so what sin was it? Tell us, tell us. And Jesus, he just shuts them down and he says, You're asking the wrong question. Here's what he says. John chapter 9. You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. He's saying, guys, it's not about blame. Aren't we all about blame, though? I mean, we walk along and you see a wrapper on the floor and you're like, I'm not picking that up. I didn't throw it there. You're blaming somebody. Something happens and you're looking quick. Ah, it's not my fault. It's somebody else. You know, you have an accident and it's just natural. You're like, oh, the brakes failed, or I didn't do this, or she turned in front of me, or whatever. We find any reason to get out of it. It's all about blame. And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. You're focusing on the wrong thing. And we do that to justify ourselves. And it makes us feel better. And he says, guys, you're missing it. The problem is that our assumptions lead us to the wrong questions. And our assumptions are, theirs were, that God caused the blindness. And because of that assumption then, they were looking to blame somebody. But the assumptions were all wrong. It's all about those assumptions and it leads them to blame. God caused the deformity. God causes my pain. Uh, God's trying to hurt, teach me something and, it, and it's, it's hurting me in the process. Or God doesn't like me very much. Or God loves him more than me. Or God doesn't have my best interests in mind. You really need to stop and ask yourself the question, is God good? If the disciples knew that God was good, they would have never had that assumption in the first place. But to their credit, the whole world in their, in their time thought that. Jesus, the, the king of the universe, he stopped and said, guys, you're missing the whole point. It's not about blame at all. He, he goes on and just establishing the fact that God is good. The thief is who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I am come to give you life and life more abundantly. That's the next, next chapter in John. So if we establish that God is good, the enemy is the one that destroys. God is good. Here's what Jesus picks up the story here and he says, look, he's telling, you can imagine the picture. He's like, look guys, look. Instead, look instead for what God can do. That's a whole different mindset. Instead of looking to blame and find out why these things happen to this poor guy, instead look for what God can do. Look for how he can turn that situation into something beautiful. And he says, we need to be energetically at work. By the way, this is out of the message translation. For the one who sent me here. 
working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light, or I am the light of the world, or la luz del mundo. I am the light of the world. That's where he says that famous, famous line. It's beautiful. Then he does this. He, he, he spits in the dust and he makes a clay paste with saliva. That's gross. And then he rubs the paste on the man's blind man's eyes. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. I love how, the, how John puts that little, character, that little thing in there. By the way, it means scent. And he's just because Jesus sent him to the pool and the pool means scent. I mean, then the man wa- went and washed and he saw. He saw. So let's go over this for a minute. Look what God can do. When you walk through life and your attitude and your mindset is, look what God can do, that means that you have a whole different set of assumptions. Because now your assumptions aren't looking for what people did to cause their sin or you're not assuming that they're bad or whatever. What you do is you're assuming that there's a God who loves and a God who's going to do something different and and that loves them enough to do something different. You're going to look for what God can do. I have a good friend. Anytime something remotely good happens, he'll say, look at God. I love that phrase. Look at God. And there's times where it could be something silly, like you get more fries than the other guy. And you're like, he goes, look at God. <laughs> I mean, it almost cheapens it, but at the same time, it's comical because what he is saying is God looks out for me and God can turn bad things into good. God does good things. Look at God. What has he done already? Uh, at least, I'm not at least, at first, I mean, he saved you. There's nothing more important than that. Someone pointed out to me this week, you know, even though that, you know, that story in the Bible where, where the friends tear up the roof because they can't get in the room Jesus is in and they drop their friend in. What did Jesus do? Forgives him his sin. Because that's the most important thing. And he's done that for you. He's changed your life. Look at what else he's done. He's changed you. He's rearranged you. He's, he's changed your priorities, your attitudes, what you focus on, what you think is important. Beyond that, he's answered your prayers. There are, there are answered prayers in this room here even tonight. And that's exciting to me. And we need to tell people about those things. Because that changes other people's perspective and it gives them a different set of assumptions. And so then when they walk into situations, what they're going to say is, look at God. Look at God. Look at what he can do. He can do something different. The next thing that's implied in all that is you expect God to act. I think most of the time we walk into situations and we don't expect him to do anything. It's kind of like what Christina said talking about this song. Do you expect God to do something? If you don't have any expectation, then he's not going to fulfill anything. I mean, the fact is, he wants us to come to him in faith. The Bible says that as we come to him in faith, he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Knock and you will find. You're supposed to knock. That means you're expecting something. It's different. And I love that phrase. Energetically work. You know who I thought of as Jeff Wilkie? I don't know if any of you worked with Jeff Wilkie. He has one speed, and it is on full and it's comical to watch because, I mean, you can't keep up. It's just, it's just fun. And it gets everybody else motivated. I mean, everybody else is trying to keep up because this guy's running, you know, a mile a minute. And I thought about him when I read that. Energetically work for the one who sent me. I love this because, yes, we're supposed to look at what God can do. But then Jesus tacks right on there. By the way, you're part of this. It's not just about God. Like we say, okay, God, you got it. No, no, no. You're supposed to work energetically. You're also supposed to be part of the solution. So those disciples who are pointing at the blind man, they should have been the ones that were helping him to Jesus, but they weren't. And basically, Jesus, 
verbally slaps him in the face and says, guys, you missed the whole point. You missed everything. You should be looking at what God can do, and then you should be helping him do it. Be part of the program. And, of course, we know they did. I think of it like this. I've, I've got some good friends. They're, they're getting older. They still never got married. They want to be married, but they didn't get married. It's one good friend of mine I was talking to him. I'm like, do you just pray that some girl's going to walk right in your life? What are you thinking? Do something. You've got to work with God on these kinds of things. You know? you, I mean, think about God's work and what he's doing. He, he expects us to be involved in evangelism and sharing Christ with the world. We are his way to tell the world about himself. He doesn't rent out billboards. I remember those God billboards. Those are so comical. I don't know who did them. I don't know where they came from, but the big news was, ooh, we don't know who's paying for these things. And obviously someone was paying for them. It wasn't God because he uses you as his billboard. That's what he does. He uses you to be serving. When you're supposed to be energetically working, it's talking about that. Serving in different areas of the church, serving your fellow man, serving your neighbor. He expects you to be praying. Praying is work sometimes. He expects you to be giving financially. He expects you to be living it out. He expects you to be volunteering. We are his hands and feet. And we're supposed to do it energetically. I was kind of overwhelmed by this thought the other day that when we do things, a lot of times we're doing it and we become the answer to somebody's prayer. It's overwhelming. That when you do something, it could be there, that thing could be the answer to what somebody is desperately praying for. Christina, if you could make your way up here. Think about this for a minute. We're supposed to be doing those things. You know, and we prayed earlier um, about what God wants to do in our life. I just want to ask you again, is God good or not? Because if he is, then you're going to do some of these things. You're going to wonder, what can God do? What can he do? When we say, look at God, what are some of those things that he could do? It changes your whole mindset because your assumptions are different. So when you look at a problem, it's not a problem. It's something exciting. There's a, I know this guy, he's Chinese, and I was asking him today. I ran into it today. Because I'd heard that, you know, those Chinese characters, you put two of them. The, the, the character for, I was asking him about this, and he said, um, the, the character for um, dilemma or crisis is dangerous opportunity. Those two characters, those words go together, these two characters, dangerous and opportunity go together, and that's the word crisis. So in a crisis is an opportunity. In your crisis, there's a God who can do things that no one else can do. He's actually able. And when you go into it with that attitude, it changes things. It changes the way you look. So my question is, what do you expect him to do? We already talked about what God can do, but what do you expect from him? What do you actually expect him to do? Because your expectation a lot of times either limits him or releases him to do more. But it's, I, know how, I know it's hard because there's times where you've prayed for things and it, and it hasn't happened. And so your, your, your enthusiasm and your expectation level has been dropped a little bit. Because you don't want to be disappointed again. You don't want to be hurt. I understand that. Let me finish this out, though. What can you do? Because you're supposed to energetically work right alongside him. Here's what I want to challenge you to do tonight. What I want to challenge you to do is to change your mindset. And if you have maybe been disappointed a little bit and you feel like, I want to believe, then you need to be that guy who came to Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because certainly we've seen miracles. You've experienced miracles. There's things you've seen happen in your life and in other people's lives, people in this room. But maybe you personally have, have 
lost a little bit of that expectation. So let's walk through this again. Is God good or not? Yes, he's good. What can he do? There's no limitations on him. The only limitations are ones we put on him. So the question is, what do you expect him to do? You know what? I expect him to do things that I can't even imagine. The Bible says he's going to do greater and bigger and things that we can't even possibly think of. I can think of pretty cool things. But the Bible puts no limit on that. Then that last part, don't forget that, because we do have a part to play in this. So let's do this. As, um, as Christina leads us, and Tamara, sorry, I didn't see you there. As they lead us in worship here, I want you to speak to God. Maybe for you, you're, this is all settled in your heart and mind, and you're just going to worship and spend some time with him. But maybe for you, you need to get with him and just say, God, I'm struggling with this. Help me. Help my unbelief. Maybe for you, there's something going on, and it seems impossible. I mean, there's, there are some things in our people connected to our church who have needs right now that seem impossible. I'll just tell you, they seem impossible. Things where we're thinking, I have no idea what to do or how to help these people. Only God can help them. But you know, we're in luck because only God can help them and he can help them. That's what he does. So let's just do that. Why don't you stand with me and, and um, we'll close this service. Let me pray for you and then you guys can, can close and worship. And you're welcome to, to go whenever you feel released. Father, I pray for these people in this room. I pray for us. I pray for me. God, I pray that you would expand our faith and our expectations from you. God, we know that you are good. We know that you can do anything. We know that. But God, I pray that you would move what you can do into our expectation of what you will do. And God, I pray that you would do miraculous things. Every one of these prayer requests we prayed for today, things we didn't even mention that are on these hearts and minds of these people in this room. God, I know that there are people in our church, connected to our church, who desperately need you. God, we are in a country that is divided and needs your direction and needs your peace. Father, we live in a world that needs your touch right now. God, we want to see people come to know you in a a way that we have never seen before. God, we want to see people's lives change, radically changed. God, we expect you to do those things. And we want to be part of it. And God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us about what those parts are that we need to play. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen and amen.